Welcome to Boston Confidential, Beantown's true crime podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the hub of the universe, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, let's get to it. Just some housekeeping stuff, as we usually do at the top of the show. A good response from the Henry Bedard episode. Several people had emailed me requesting that we cover that. And this goes back, I don't know, all the way back to last year at any rate. And I was a little reluctant to do the story. As I said in the podcast, man, there's just so little evidence on it. I thought the podcast would be about 15 minutes. I think it ended up being about 36 minutes or so. But man, there's just so little physical evidence in that case. I do believe if the Henry Bedard murder happened today, it would be solved relatively quickly. What some of the emailers had asked was, what do you actually think happened here? I think somebody in Henry's friend group, direct friend group, asked to meet him for some reason, and it was, seemed to be a pressing reason, because if you remember, Lieutenant Cassidy had seen the kid crossing the street, and Cassidy says he seemed to be in a hurry. And then he walks past the DPW yard back up to that Swamp Scott View hangout, you know. So what I think happened there, he was set to meet somebody for some reason. And, you know, what are the reasons you kill people? Money, love, lust. The reasons are endless, really. But I think this was a friend of Henry's, or at least in his social circle. He committed this homicide. And I'm saying he, because it's a baseball bat murder and women typically don't kill like that. And typically, women don't kill nearly as much as men anyway. So I think you can kind of narrow it down to a male suspect. And I believe that that person is likely in Henry's friend group and just went back to his life. And I would also further say this person was probably polygraphed by the police. And he was sitting there waiting to fail the polygraph. But they give him the green light and say, yeah, you passed. And now he goes back to his life. I bet that guy who did this, the kid who did this, was at Henry's funeral. Imagine that. And the other people in Henry's friend group will be shocked if it ever comes to light. I, I believe that to be the case. This was someone relatively close to Henry, you know, and somebody from the area. You don't go to Swamp Scott View because you're just happening by and you want to look at the town. So... Horrible case. I don't know if there'll ever be justice. When the coroner screwed up the fingerprints and there was a torrential rainstorm the night of the killing, man, it all went to hell, really. All right, guys, I guess we got to jump back in the time machine for this episode. We go back to 1990 in Kingston, Massachusetts. That's what, 32 years now. Yeah, it seems like yesterday, but it really wasn't, right? This is the case of Melissa Benoit of Kingston, Massachusetts, and it's a horrific case. I remember when it happened, I was still at home, 
and my mother was frantic over it, you know. I can still see her watching the coverage of this case, shaking her head, and man, it was horrible. But let's get to the story. So Melissa Benoit lived with her family on Main Street in Kingston, Massachusetts, and she was an eighth grade student at the Sacred Heart Parochial School in town. She was known to be vivacious, just a typical kid, good-natured, good-mannered. She came from a good home. She lived with her mom and dad. Her dad name was Richard, and her mom was Diane. I don't know if the mom ever changed her last name, but I see her name is Diane Richards. And there was another sister, and her name was Erin, and she was 11 years old. I believe she went to Sacred Heart as well. This family was living a typical middle-class life. Things were good. But let me tell you a little bit about Kingston before we get through the family and all that. Kingston is a beautiful community. It's south of Boston, and it borders Plymouth, Massachusetts. People always remember Plymouth because that's where the pilgrims landed, and there's the world's worst tourist attraction, Plymouth Rock on the beach in Plymouth, and that's been disappointing school children for generations. But that's another story. Kingston neighbors Plymouth, Massachusetts, and it's equally as beautiful. It's a beautiful section of New England. And in the springtime in Kingston and also in Plymouth, it has this beautiful smell. I don't know if it has something to do with the pine trees or something like that, but in the morning in the spring... When you're in Kingston, man, it's just this crisp, pine-smelly, it's typical New England, really. It's gorgeous. And it's about 45 minutes to Boston, but it seems more than a world away. And if you're going to factor in traffic, it may actually be a world away. You're probably looking at a commute if you're driving into the city in the morning. If you're a commuter, if you're driving in, it's an hour, hour and 10 minutes. But they do have a commuter rail line. A lot of people use that to head into Boston. The driving commute in the summer is kind of hellacious, right? Because like on a Friday, people are heading for Cape Cod and the roads are just jammed. So if you were driving into Boston on a Friday in July from Boston back to Kingston, you might be looking at a two-hour commute. You might have to grab a road soda for that one, but still a very beautiful community. At Christmas time, they do this whole thing. It seems like the whole town does this intense Christmas lighting down there, and it's absolutely beautiful. Guys, I also wanted to mention that this case had been suggested to me repeatedly, but most recently by Beth from Carver, Massachusetts. She outlined the case pretty emotionally, and she says she drives by that house twice a day now, and it's always on her mind. So, Beth, here's your episode. So, Kingston, essentially, was kind of like the town that time forgot. It was almost like it's 1990, right? But it might as well have been 1950. There wasn't much going on in Kingston, Plymouth during the 1990s. Right now, they've really built up Plymouth Harbor. There's a ton of upscale restaurants with water views, and the same thing in Kingston. But in the 1990s, there wasn't a hell of a lot going on down there. There was school work. If you were lucky enough to work in the area and didn't have to go through the commute to Boston, or even some people were commuting an hour to Providence, Rhode Island as well. 
I mean, you'd hit the jackpot. You were living in paradise. And the Miles Standish State Forest is there, which is, I don't know, untold acres upon acres of undisturbed forests with trails and all this. So it's just a wicked cool place. So the Benoit family loved Kingston, and they were going through a little bit of a hard time. Their dad, Richard, passed away unexpectedly, totally unexpectedly, at age 41. And that was devastating to the family. And they were still grieving, still trying to get through it. You know, everybody was back to school and all that and trying to move forward. But Melissa was especially close with her dad as she was the oldest, you know, and she was completely devastated and trying to cope with grief while simultaneously coming into being a teenager. And that can't be easy. So that brings us up to about the afternoon of Saturday, September 19th, 1990. Melissa spent some of the afternoon at a friend's house watching TV And after leaving her friend's house, she walked to her father's grave, something she had done quite frequently. And, you know, she sits there silently and they communicate and you know what happens at graveside. So she concludes that and walks back towards her residence. Unfortunately, Melissa Benoit wouldn't make it back home. And one of the largest searches in Massachusetts history would soon get underway. So when Melissa fails to return from the graveside, and I don't know if mom knew she was going to do that after leaving her friend's house, but it's a walkable distance. And, you know, she's 13. She can handle herself. Again, some of these things, it's just an everyday thing, like the Henry Bedard case. This was just a day in the life. And this girl, Just never knew what was coming. So she goes to walk home and is abducted. And mom, after a few hours, starts losing her S, just like Henry Bedard's family. She starts to lose it. And that transfers to her little sister, Erin. This is so out of character for Melissa that they go to the police relatively quickly. And the police, this is a tiny town. I think it was probably 12,000, 13,000 people at that time. So Diane Benoit calls the police. And again, to their credit, the Kingston Police Department didn't waste time. They knew the Benoit family and they knew Melissa a little bit, kind of a straight arrow. She's not involved in drugs, drinking. She's just a 13-year-old kid who goes to Sacred Heart like, you know, hundreds of other kids. They knew the family. They're not involved in drugs and, you know, straight arrows. And the police start to search almost immediately. And then the police put out a clarion call. I don't know if this was the next morning or during that evening, but they put out a call for assistance to the public, right? And about 1,100 people, residents of Kingston and Plymouth, show up. This is such a testament to Kingston that... 1,100 people show up. In town, they were closing the shops. Some shops closed so their employees could go look. And I think they had to because the employees were just going to walk out and go do it anyway. So they closed the shops, some of them, and people went to search. Again, the cops said there's so many people here. You know, we don't really know what to do with them. But they did do a thorough search of the area, and it was exhaustive, and it was multi-days, guys. And now... 
this hits the news and it's big news because nothing like this ever happens in Kingston. So the media attention ramps up. The next morning, I believe the state police had two helicopters up in the air helping with this search because Kingston, it's a small town. I've given you that already, but it is super woody. There's some swamp areas and there's also some coastline as well. So with these helicopters, they could cover so much more ground, but Melissa was nowhere to be found. I believe the police went right to abduction rather than typical lost girl, you know. She knew her way around town. She's not going into the forest and getting lost. And they had a pretty good timeline because she had left her friend's house, I don't know, 2.15-ish, 2.30-ish. I don't know if she told her friend that she was going to visit her dad's grave on the way home. But at least they had a starting point from that other kid's house, you know. And when they didn't find the kid in that immediate area, I think the hair on the cop's neck kind of stood up a little bit. And they called in more resources. And again, to Kingston Police's credit, they contacted the FBI. And the FBI, in this case, was super responsive. Because this did seem like a child abduction right from Jump Street. I think it was a brilliant move bringing in the FBI so quickly. And typically how it goes is there's no federal jurisdiction, so the federal government, the FBI, couldn't get involved on their own, even if they wanted to. They have to be invited in by the local police department, and then they work in conjunction with the local police and the state police. The state police had become involved as well. So this search for 13-year-old Melissa Benoit goes on for 11 days, and people are just devastated. I remember seeing on the news there was somebody from the community being interviewed saying, you know, we have all these volunteers, we're all willing to do the work that's necessary, but we don't seem to be getting anywhere. And I remember the look on this woman's face, and it was just devastation, really. But they continue the investigation and the searching. Like I say, Kingston is a small town, but geographically it's a ton of woods. Most of it's uninhabited. But the investigation continues, and the FBI comes up with an interesting strategy. They tell the local police that we're going to interview everybody on the street, and it was Main Street, and they lived in the 250 block. And I think this was twofold, because she disappeared so quickly and without a trace, basically from Main Street, that they thought somebody in the immediate area could be responsible, but also the FBI wanted to note who declined the polygraph. Now, you may run into some constitutional issues there if you use their refusal to take a polygraph against them. But in terms of focusing the investigation, I believe it was brilliant. And most people on the street are lining up to take the polygraph they want their names off the list so they can focus on who did this. But they get to the next door neighbor of the Benoits. And this family had moved in in 1978. They were friendly with the Benoits. They were well known in the community. And this was the Meinholz household. And the head of that household was Henry Meinholz and his wife. I didn't see any mention of children, but... They were well known. They knew the Benoits. They lived literally 
50 feet from the Benoits. Can you believe that? And so they get to talking to Henry, and I'm not going to gloss over it. Henry comes off as a goddamn lunatic right from Jump Street. So they get Henry to take the polygraph. He doesn't hesitate much on it, but he tells him he's a little bit nervous doing it. And afterwards, they tell Henry, and I don't know if this was true, Henry, you failed this test miserably. You're the worst polygraph test we've taken on the street. What's going on? So Henry opens up, and it's a floodgates. And this is actually where the jail door closes on this idiot. So when the FBI and the Kingston PD come back to Henry with the results of the polygraph, and they could have been bluffing, I don't know. They say he failed, and he starts getting worked up, and he opens the floodgates. He says, yeah, I may have failed because I often fantasize about having sex with little girls. Right? So bang, jail door opens. And he says at a certain point, he'd drive around Kingston in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and masturbate while looking at pubescent and prepubescent girls. So maybe that's the reason I failed the polygraph, he says, you know. And the detectives must just look at each other like, what the hell's going on with this guy? So imagine being the FBI agent or the Kingston police officer who's in on this interview. You're speaking to him, and he says, yeah, I fantasize about basically raping, because they can't consent, raping little girls. So you must be sitting there thinking, geez, we've got to get a search warrant for this house. This is the guy, right? And you must be looking to run out the door and go right to the courthouse from that point forward. You know, it must be that type of pressure, but it's got to be good pressure, you know? So they continue to talk to Henry, and I'm not sure in my research, I see it two different ways. At court, Henry admits to actually previously raping a girl, a teenage girl, by knife point. And I'm not sure if this was during the FBI phase of the investigation or later at court. But man, this guy is just a slimy, slimy bastard. Let me tell you a little bit about the background of this guy. Henry Meinholz, like I said, he had lived 50 feet from the Benoit family. He was a deacon at the First Baptist Church in Plymouth, and he was very involved. And I didn't remember that facet from the case when it was going on live. But you know who else was a deacon in his church was the BTK killer. That's just an aside. But this guy worked in his church. He was a bookkeeper as well for a construction company. He's a Navy veteran. Not somebody you'd ever turn to and say, that's the creepy guy in the trench coat on the train, right? But that's exactly what he was and worse. So I believe almost simultaneously to Henry Meinholz giving this crazy reason why he failed the polygraph test. As that's going on, one of the FBI guys leaves the room, tells the supervisor they want to get a warrant for the house, but that's going to take some time. So instead, they go to Meinholz's wife and ask her for permission to search the house and why. So the wife, Meinholz's wife, grants 
the police permission to search and they draw up a contract, a permission to search basically. And on the 11th day of Melissa Benoit's disappearance, she was found in Henry Meinholz's cellar. And it was a horrible scene and it's going to get worse. So right now I have to give you a warning. What you're going to hear just after this is horrible and it involves sexual crimes against children the murder of a child, and if you can't handle that, you might want to bail right now because this is your only warning. So the forensic guys arrive, they begin their search, and the mine host's cellar is like a dirt floor, and I'm not sure if the wife had told them, yeah, Henry's been working down there or whatever, but pretty quickly they come across Melissa's body. She's been buried in a shallow grave under some coal and whatever other debris down there and they find her and man she's been asphyxiated it appears at first glance there's a plastic sheet that's wrapped around her neck obvious signs of being brutalized and at that point they back out take some pictures i think they put the handcuffs on henry meinholz at that point so the condition of the body is horrendous because now, again, it's been 11 days of decomposition here, right? But at the autopsy, they could see contusions all over this poor girl. And let me tell you a little bit about Melissa Benoit. She was a pretty girl, right? But she was on the child side of 13 rather than the teenage side of 13. You know how things go during development during those years. I don't have to get explicit. But man, I can't believe what this guy did to her. He really brutalized her. She had extensive bruising on her thighs, which the police would later say was consistent with her trying to squeeze her legs closed. She had a massive contusion, that's a bruise, on her back. Bruises of the head, face, scalp, in the chest. This guy was a goddamn animal. So what they had theorized was this. They think Henry had planned this, but on the 15th, he sees her either leaving her friend's house or coming back from her father's grave, and that's when he abducts her. And somehow he gets her back to the house. Who knows where the wife is at this time? And I think this comes from his confession. Henry Meinholz would confess, and he said, yes, I did a sex act to her. And there was no semen in the body. So I believe it was an oral type of sex act. And after he had finished, she had asked him, poor Melissa asked him, are you going to kill me now? And he did. And he murdered her in the most brutal fashion. And I don't want to get too deeply into this, but I got to give you the straight dope. This is Boston Confidential. I got to give it to you straight. During my research, I read an account by a criminalist who had handled a lot of Metropolitan Boston's most horrendous cases. And this criminalist said, yes, she was sexually abused and she had all these contusions on her that the police couldn't originally figure out very quickly. But the forensic guys came up with this theory, and it's accurate, and I wish it wasn't that she was kind of strung up, you know, using a ladder 
and brutalized in that fashion. And it's hard to get through. And she was eventually asphyxiated, but there was several wounds that would indicate he would asphyxiate and then stop. You know what I mean? So he was basically playing God with this kid. And the autopsy results would say she had been dead when she was discovered between 9 and 11 days. So nobody really knows how long she was kept alive. Meinholz said she was killed that day in his confession. And he comes up with some bullshit story about voices in his head. And the way Meinholz tells it is that he saw her presumably coming back from her dad's grave. I can't believe this bastard. Coming back from her dad's grave, right? Which Meinholz would have known about, by the way. And the voice in his head's rape her. You're not a man if you don't rape her. Just bullshit, right? So that's how he tries to play it off. The only way out of this thing is an insanity defense. And this goofball, Meinholz, goes on to tell, yeah, this is the first day I've heard this voice when it told me to rape her. And then after Melissa asked him, are you going to kill me now? The voice in his head says, yeah, kill her. So this is not the way hearing voices works. And it was completely refuted in the courtroom later on. You know, you just don't hear one voice, hey, go kill that person, and you act on it. People do hear voices, schizophrenics and all that, and it's hard to deny these voices, but this guy's just full of shit. He's the guy your mother warned you about. He's the boogeyman. He's evil. He's also a total loser, right? He couldn't even finish this deed. There's no semen found in Melissa, so he was a complete failure in that. So he did his dirty deed up until the point of penetration. And that's what a lot of people don't understand about this case. Why wasn't he tried for rape? They couldn't really prove rape, right? And I guess they could from his story. They could have charged him with it, but they ended up charging him with first-degree murder, which presents a life-without-parole sentence, and that's a mandatory sentence. So an attack on a rape, I don't know. What does it really do? But... He defiled this girl, and he deserved the worst punishment possible. Unfortunately, we're in Massachusetts, where true justice is always out of reach. So as you can imagine, the Benoit family was devastated to the point where I read where the mom said, we couldn't even move. Like, what did this girl do to this monster? Coming home from her father's grave. I just want to give him the big F you, you know what I mean? Jeez. So also a victim in this, and people don't usually think along these lines, was the community of Kingston. This was a close-knit community. They all grow up together, right? They all play sports together. They're part and parcel of the town. And they were just blown away. This next-door neighbor murders this beautiful little girl and buries her in the cellar. And how he killed her was just beyond words. So when I tell you this was big news in New England, man, for a long time it really was. And they say Kingston still hasn't recovered from this. It's just horrible. But this case goes to trial. And I don't know if Meinholz actually paid for an attorney 
or was appointed an attorney, but he got Jack Atwood, who at the time, and I think still today, is one of Metropolitan Boston's best criminal defense attorneys. But what's this guy going to do? A, Meinholz confessed right there. They read him his rights. They had him dead to rights. And he said what he had did. He had previously, during this confession, admitted to raping somebody in 1980 with a knife, a teenage girl, you know, basically in the same fashion. And he let her go. But don't forget, Melissa Benoit knew him. He also admitted to driving around. And I think there's a mall in Kingston. And he'd go to the mall and like masturbate in the parking lot. This is his justification. And so the only route to go in the criminal proceedings was a insanity defense. But I don't know, maybe 98, 99% of insanity claims fall flat. And this one would too. Because during the trial, they had experts come in and say, that's not how voices work. That's not how schizophrenia works. It doesn't happen in one day. And don't forget, this skeevy bastard didn't say, well, when I raped that other girl, I heard the voices as well. The first day he said he heard those voices was the day he raped and killed Melissa Benoit. Complete not a horseshit. In a strange turn of events in the trial, though, Meinholz does take the stand. I guess, really, what do you have to lose if you're Jack Atwood, right? And he testifies for two hours, but the prosecution just eviscerates him, just totally eviscerates him. Big mistake. He wasn't going to win it anyways, so I don't know. I really don't understand the strategy there, but he tripped himself up more than he helped himself. And the jury naturally comes back with a guilty verdict, you know, within a day or so. So the evidence was absolutely overwhelming, right? Starting with the confession, what more do you need? But there was physical evidence, a ton of it. And again, the jury didn't have to deliberate very long. It was just such a sad, sad goddamn situation, you know? And that's how the Commonwealth watched it. You watch it on the news and you just shake your head. Just shake your head. This guy was 52 years old. Henry Meinholz was 52. I hear him described as working at a lumber yard and a construction company. Maybe it was both, one or the other. I really don't care. But he was a bookkeeper. Again, he's a deacon in the Baptist church, the First Baptist Church in Plymouth. He just kind of reminds me a little bit of BTK. And the police chief down in Kingston was convinced that this probably wasn't a one-of, that you may have had a serial killer or a budding serial killer. And I guess it turned out to be the latter. But the Kingston police, at a certain point, I don't know if it was after trial or just during the Benoit investigation, they ripped the hell out of this guy's yard looking for bodies and everything else. Because he just fits that profile. He's a budding serial killer, you know? And you have to give the police and the prosecutors in this all the credit in the world. The Kingston police jumped on this case just as you'd expect them to do. So I give them some applause. They brought the FBI in, and the FBI strategy actually cracked this case. So kudos all around there. 
but the judge was disgusted, as most of you are here today listening. And the judge said when he was sentencing Meinholz, and it was actually Judge Cortland Mathers, and I believe he was out of Plymouth County, and he said, it is said that my predecessors in colonial times had a gallows erected on the green in front of this courthouse and summarily sent defendants convicted as you have been to be hanged. I truly regret that option is not open to me in this case. So I have to ask you, sometimes I get emails about my position on capital punishment. How do you feel about this case? This case was built for the death penalty. Irrefutable evidence, a confession, a conviction, no other suspects. The body was found in this guy's house. He admitted to it, guys. How is a life sentence being in PC, protective custody, in one of Massachusetts prisons, how is that a fair sentence for what he did when he choked the life out of her and defiled this poor young girl who did nothing to him? Why do people care about this animal? He would go to the great beyond in a much gentler fashion than that which he had granted Melissa Benoit, a much gentler fashion. Why do we coddle these people? Man, it's just beyond me. A life sentence, even if it was Susan Baranowski, and it wasn't, even if he was in confinement for the rest of it, it's just not enough, guys. It's not enough for what he did. So Meinholz goes off to serve his mandatory life without parole. And, man, I wish he had spent every day rotting in a goddamn hole, but he would die in the year 2000, so he ends up serving 10 years in prison. And I just don't know how tough Massachusetts prisons are for people like this. But he died in the year 2000. I don't know how natural causes or cancer, I just really don't give a crap. But that's an escape to me. He escaped justice. He should have been put down for the dirt nap, sorry. All right, guys, I think that's all I have on this horrendous case. We've had some tough cases to get through. Aaron Hernandez, this case, Melissa Benoit. Man, somebody emailed me some good heist cases. You can kind of have a laugh at those if nobody gets killed, right? We had done the Brinks job, the Plymouth mail truck robbery. Send in something else. I'll do it. All right, guys. Say a prayer for Melissa Benoit today and her family. She'll hear you. All right? That's all I have for you, and I'll see you on the flip side.